This is G-Day World 329. You're listening to Cameron Riley on the Podcast Network. Be afraid. Be very afraid. track so let your blood boiling or what uh for those of you who haven't read the show notes i've had a couple of people ask a couple of people a couple of people ask me on twitter uh who it is and i go go read the show notes uh i go to some trouble to put the show notes together well i don't go to that much trouble actually uh it's called secrets of life it's by a band called conquest and it's from their album end of days and i got it from iota promo net and it is my current theme music because it is very angry music, and I'm feeling very angry in a good way, in a positive way. Thanks to everybody who gave me great feedback on the last show with Stephen Main. All his doing, none of mine. He was a fabulous guest, and uh, I really want to thank him again for coming on and having a chat, and uh, hope he gave you all a little bit of inspiration. A couple of things before I jump into my show for today. Um, a couple of things that I've blogged about that I want to draw your attention to if uh, you don't haven't read the blog in the last few days. Um, there's a website that's launched called Open Australia. The URL is openaustralia.org, and it's the local version of the very brilliant British site theyworkforyou.co.uk. Basically, it enables you to track your local politicians, your MPs, and you can uh, see what they're doing in Parliament. You can get email alerts every time they speak in Parliament. This comes out of Hansard. And there's a lot of other features that they work for you have that the folks at Open Australia are trying to build in. One of the things we've been debating about a bit on the blog over the last week is this thing called the Register of Interests of the Members, which basically shows you what assets they have and, and who's contributing money to them which the Open Australia folks uh, tried to get uh, access to and found out that it doesn't actually exist, not only not online, but not even as an electronic document. It is a paper handwritten uh, document. There's a folder with 1,500 pages in it kept in Canberra somewhere uh, where people's where, where, where politicians' uh, assets and interests and, and contributions made to them are updated by hand. It is so uh, <laughs> hidden away by the bureaucracy that you've got to wonder whether or not this is deliberate. Interestingly enough, on my blog post, um, Democrat Senator Andrew Bartlett, by the way, today, the 24th of June, 2008, uh, 25th of June, sorry, 2008, is Andrew's last day as a Democrat senator and uh, last day as a, uh, for all of the Democrat senators. We no longer have a Democrat senator in Australia, which is uh, kind of a shame. 
But I think there's a lot of good lessons to be learnt from the downfall of the Democrats in the last decade, and, and we should probably try and get Andrew on the show to discuss that. Anyway, Andrew jumped on and, and gave us some thoughts about this register of members' interests and, and how we should go about it. And uh, the folks at Open Australia tell me that they're getting a good response from the parliament. They're going to work on it. But, um, you know, I, I think it'd be great for us to have more transparency in uh, the Australian political arena, and not only to be able to see quickly and easily uh, what our politicians are actually doing when we send them there, you know, what they're voting for, how they're voting on the bills that come forward, what the debates involve, but also to see, you know, what assets they're holding and, uh, you know, who's lining their pockets without wanting to suggest that they're all a pack of assholes, as Andrew Bartlett said in my comments section. Um, it's great, though. I mean, how, how cool is Andrew Butler? The fact that he's been a blogger for quite a few years now. He's participating in other blogs. I know he went to the recent uh, Gold Coast uh, bar camp uh, a few weeks ago. So, uh, you know, fabulous to see this guy out there um, actually engaging with uh, the general public via blogs and podcasts. He's been on this show before. He came on a couple of years ago and and uh, gave me an analysis of the federal budget in 2005, 2006, I think. Uh, some other stuff that I've covered on the blog just recently, uh, newspapers in the US. This is a report out of the New York Times that Tony Harris sent me. Thank you, Tony. Uh, saying that this year is the worst year on record for newspapers in the US in terms of advertising revenue. I think it's taken a double-digit decline this year. You know, we've been talking about this for a long time on the show. I've been predicting f ever since I started getting involved in this media stuff four or five years ago that newspapers, uh, along with radio and TV, are going to get really hit really hard. And it basically breaks down like this. They are facing competition for people's attention for the first time in their history. Genuine competition. I'm not talking about, you know, a new newspaper in their territory or a new radio station. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of podcasts to listen to, millions of blogs for people to read, etc. So this is real competition for people's attention, not to mention Xbox and, you know, all the DVDs and, and BitTorrent and all the other stuff that's capturing our attention these days. Now, it is absolutely a done deal that audience attention is going to fragment. When audience... Uh, viewership or readership or listenership drops, their ability to generate advertising revenue declines. And there may, there's probably a lag in that as advertisers start to wake up that, you know, this stuff isn't delivering the results that it used to deliver, but it's got to happen. And then when, once advertising revenue is in decline, what do these businesses do? Well, they either, you know, figure out how to get it back up again, but most of the people running these media companies aren't very smart. Uh, take it from me, I've met a lot of the execs and management in these places. I'm not saying Rupert Murdoch's not smart or Kerry Packer wasn't smart. I'm talking about, you know, the, the, the senior management in these places are, are pretty dim. They they work for big companies. They're, they're bureaucrats. They're, um, you know, pencil-pushing spreadsheet jockeys. They're not, you know, the brightest star, star in the sky. If they were, they'd be out there doing something real with their lives, right? Um. And so, <laughs> apologies to any of my friends, the good people, there's some good people working in this space too, I must say, before everyone hates me. But, um, you know, the, the, the folks that have got a brain and working in the old media space know the writing's on the wall and, and they're, they're quite upfront about that. So it's very hard for these guys to pick it up. So what happens is they have to cut back and they cut back, you know, uh, journalists, they cut back sales staff, they cut back, uh, on, you know, 
all sorts of things in the business, and that hits morality, uh, not morality, but mor- uh, the, the, the morale of the business. And, uh, you know, it, they basically go into slow rot. This is what happens when industries start to go bad. And, you know, there's been some debate on the blog post, uh, particularly uh, Tom Reynolds, who d- does some work for 3AW and thinks that talk radio is going to be around forever, even though uh, the former owners of 3AW and 2UE, the two biggest talk radio stations in Australia, Southern Cross Broadcasting, had to sell last year. They were bought by Fairfax and Macquarie Media, um, in part because they were really struggling. The business wasn't going too well. They had some other assets apart from radio. They had some uh, regional TV as well. But, you know, their, their revenue was flat year on year, which basically is a sign that the business is uh, struggling. So anyway, go read that, um, the debate on that. And I did a blog post today um, about Gloria Jean's coffee again. Uh, for those of you who haven't followed this story or aren't from these parts, Gloria Jean's is a big Australian uh, coffee franchise, the founders of which are fundamentalist Christians who belong to a, not just belong to, but are elders in a very scary right wing fundamentalist Christian sect in Australia called Hillsong. And uh, we, we, I've done a couple of blog posts exposing these guys over the last couple of years, in particular because they've been raising money for a mob called Mercy Ministries which is affiliated with Hillsong. And they basically take uh, young girls that have got emotional problems, usually you know, they're, they're uh, young, single, pregnant girls or something like that. And they basically, we used to think that they were just subjecting them to a lot of religious brainwashing when they were at their most vulnerable. What has come out in the last year from some of these girls that escaped is that they're getting treated very harshly. There's allegations of them being locked up in rooms, uh, subjected to uh, exorcisms, uh, really, seriously. This all broke in the mainstream media out here. I first picked up the story when I think John Safran, uh, Father Bob's uh, radio and TV partner at Triple J, uh, mentioned something about them a few years ago, and I picked up the scent and did some research. Anyway, there's a blog post I put up there today based on a comment that somebody left on an earlier blog post I did about Gloria Jeans. This guy is an ex, or claims to be an ex-franchisee of Gloria Jeans, said he saw the light, though, and got out. And he said they were given targets for their voluntary contributions, and they were uh, their, their uh, contribution boxes for Mercy Ministries were audited, and they had a required target for what those contributions were supposed to be each month. And uh, they would uh, get into a lot of trouble if they didn't meet their so-called voluntary contributions. You know, uh, the the marketing director of Gloria Jeans has been on my blog over the last six months uh, trying to justify their behavior in the comments sections. But, uh, you know, it's, it's quite obvious that this is a very, very dangerous business that is funneling money a large amount of money to a very, very dangerous right-wing Christian fundamentalist sect in this country, and you've got to vote with your dollars. Australians who listen to this, do not, do not go into Gloria Jeans and buy coffee unless you want to support very scary right-wing US-style fund. It's run by a couple of Americans, Hillsong. Um, and by the way, the, the father of the founder of Hillsong, uh, who was an elder in the church, got done a few years ago for child molestation, uh, you know, actually got brought up in charges. And uh, he was sort of, you know, they hid him in the church and he was forced to step down. But this is the father of the founder of the church 
who is still, uh, as far as I know, involved in the church, perhaps not as an elder anymore, but is still involved. So they're, they're very scary mob. And if we don't want Australia to end up like the U.S., where these scary Christian fundamentalist groups playing a significant role in public policy, we need to uh, we need to out them. We need to build awareness. We need to tell all of our friends and family don't support them with your money. Don't go in there and buy their coffee. Apart from the fact that their coffee's you know pretty shit anyway, it's akin to Starbucks, very sugary, uh, watery, bad coffee. A lot of people in Brisbane can probably tell the difference. But uh, anyway, very scary mob. Let me uh, uh, get on to the show today. Uh, a little bit of a reverse uh, scenario here. It's actually me being interviewed by a guy called Rob McNeely. Now, Rob's a great guy. He's an American, lives in Denver, Colorado, and uh, he runs a podcast uh, called Startup Radio, and uh, he has approached me about coming on and having a chat about my experience as an entrepreneur, and we ended up having a wide-ranging chat about entrepreneurship, uh, doing good in the world. I gave him my whole meme about how entrepreneurs need to, uh, you know, uh, combine making money with actually having a a purpose for doing good in the world and adding value and contributing something back. Uh, We also ended up talking about uh, Christianity and science, and uh, we had a very interesting chat off air as well, which you missed out on, but uh, I really enjoyed chatting to Rob. I think we ended up, the podcast is about an hour, and I think I'm actually pipping him, pipping him here. It's, it hasn't gone up on Startup Radio yet, so I'm, I'm beating him to the punch. The uh, URL for his uh, show is startupradio.com, I think. Just give me a sec while I look that up. And he um, has a whole range of people, not just internet entrepreneurs. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a wide range of people there with all sorts of businesses. So, um, but you know, I, I really enjoyed my chat with Rob both on and off air. I think the show, as I said, the recording went for an hour and then he and I, he and I chatted for about another, uh, sorry, the URL is startupstoryradio.com, startupstoryradio.com. He and I had a chat for about another hour off the air afterwards about politics and business and religion and science and all sorts of stuff. It was, um, Good chat. I can tell that Rob and I are going to be close mates for a long time. Might even try and convince him to move his family to Australia. Uh, so here it is. G'day World 329. Cameron being interviewed for a change by Rob McNeely from Startup Story Radio. Oh, listen, before I go, something I really want to plug. Um, uh, we're doing this email. I started it a little while ago and then I let it lapse and now we're back again. Every Monday, there's a, a, a an RSS and an email sent out that has all of the TPN shows, links to all of the TPN shows, and a, and a brief uh, summary of what they're about from the last seven days. And uh, it's a blog post that goes up on the TPN blog, tpn.thepodcastnetwork.com. And I'd really like to encourage you to subscribe to that, either via RSS or via email. You can see a link to both the RSS feed and the uh, email subscription in the show notes for this blog post, or you can go up to tpn.thepodcastnetwork.com, get to the blog and do it directly there. And, uh, you know, there's a, there's a wide range of shows on TPN. I've got big plans for adding new shows this year now that we've got our new hosting platform up. You know, just subscribe to it, have a look. You might find something there that you don't even know exists on TPN. You might find interesting to uh, have a listen to. A lot of great shows. So um, please go and check it out. I'm also running a competition to the end of June. Everyone who signs up for the email goes into the running for um, this poster that we've got, uh, the Indiana Jones 4 poster. 
the Crystal Skull flick, signed by Steven Spielberg and uh, and and um, the kid. Steven Spielberg and the kid, uh, LaBeouf, Shia LaBeouf, signed by them. It's from Paramount Pictures have put this together for us. So um, the way it works is you sign up for the email uh, distribution list and you're in the running for that signed poster. It's on a hardboard sort of background. Uh, very exciting for you, for you if you're an indie fan. Uh, if you've got kids, they'll be very excited about it. Or if not, win it and sell it on eBay. I reckon you'd get easy 500 bucks for it. All right, so uh, please go and sign that. Finishes the end of June. And uh, I'll shut up now and I'll throw to my chat with Rob McNeely. Camera now. Well, welcome to Startup Story Radio. And remember, folks, what's your story? Today, we are talking to an Australian. Um, uh, we're actually doing more interviews with people outside the United States because, you know, entrepreneurship is a universal concept. And uh, I want to evangelize not to Americans, but to the world. And um, I originally was, when I was looking to start my podcast, I was looking at all the different options, and I did come across the podcast network, which is run by our guest, Cameron Riley. So um, Cameron's a, a very interesting entrepreneur. He's got a lot of sticks and a lot of fires, and uh, I don't want to try to do damage to his reputation. I'd just like to him to explain and introduce who he is. So Cameron, how are you today? I do enough damage to my own reputation on a daily basis, Rob. I'm good. How are you doing, man? I am fantastic. Uh, I appreciate you coming on the show this morning. Um, it's been trying to tricky trying to figure out this whole time zone thing. You know, I think we should just have one time zone worldwide. I've been I saying really that for that. years. One time zone, and it's based on wherever I am at that time. <laughs> exactly. So, actually, who is Cameron Riley? Well, uh, now you're trying to get into metaphysics with me, Rob, and I'd have to say that Cameron Riley is uh, a concept that exists only in uh, your mind. Really, Cameron <laughs> Riley is a collection of uh, cells. Those cells are made up of molecules. The molecules are made up of atoms. The atoms are made up of subatomic particles which are completely uh, revolving in and out of this body called Cameron on a constant basis. So Cameron is really just a conceptual construct, uh, perhaps in your mind or in the mind of your listeners. It sounds like the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, actually. Well, yeah, I think it's actually true. I believe that. I don't believe Cameron really exists outside of being a conceptual construct. But for the moment, let's run with that. Who is Cameron? Um, I don't know. <laughs> We're all the Matrix. That's right. Uh, listen, I, I don't know. You asked me before about um, before we went on air about um, how I define myself, uh, and, and as I said to you, I, I think I really define myself these days as a social activist. All of the things that I've started uh, in the last three or four years, including the podcast network, which was the world's first uh, podcasting business, um, through to a religion for atheists that I started recently. I've started a charity for geeks, um, a book publishing company, number of other things. And, and they've all been driven by this desire that I have to try and change the world uh, in a positive fashion, try and, and do something positive with the however many minutes, hours, days I have left in my life to try and be a, a force for positive change uh, for the human race. And being an entrepreneur is, is just part and parcel of that. You know, most entrepreneurs just want to make a pile of cash. Well, I actually, so, don't, I actually <laughs> don't believe that's true. You know, I, I interviewed a lot of entrepreneurs. I'm, I'm, the main podcast that I produce, um, G'day World, which 
was the first Australian podcast. Uh, we started back in late 2004. And I, I regularly have entrepreneurs on that. And, and I don't know that that's true. I, I think that's a perspective of entrepreneurs that is widely held. But I think actually when you drill down and talk to entrepreneurs, sure, they, they want to be f- profitable. Uh, they want to be financially successful. If for no other reason, then it gives them the freedom to keep running their business. But I think at the end of the day, most entrepreneurs are actually driven by a different motivation than just making It's really, I I really was kind of being facetious. I think most entrepreneurs that I have come in contact with, and I run actually an entrepreneur group out here, a high-level vetted entrepreneur group as well out here in Denver, Colorado. And what I have found, entrepreneurs tend to be very collaborative in nature. And I think I think the underlying theme that I seem to kind of run, run across with entrepreneurs is that they're looking for control and freedom of their destiny. And basically, they're looking for fulfillment. And for some of those entrepreneurs, it comes from money, of course. But others, it does come from changing the world, as you put it, and, and everything in between those two poles. Um, so as actually you mentioned, you want to change the world. How do you want to change the world? Well, in a number of ways, but essentially uh, when I uh, sit back and look at where the human race is in these early years of the 21st century, I'm extremely concerned about our chances of uh, surviving this century. Uh, I think that we're in an extremely volatile period of human history and you know, for the first time in human history, we, you know, and this is for the last century, the last 50, 60 years, we actually have the ability to wipe out all, not just all human life, but pretty much all multicellular life on this planet. And when I look at the people that are running the planet, which essentially seems to be uh, governments, uh, big corporations and uh, religious leaders, they don't instill in me a lot of hope or confidence that they actually know what the hell they're doing. So, uh, (laughs) you know, when I look at the internet, I see it as an amazing tool for the proletariat around the world, the the people who aren't necessarily the the wealthy, powerful uh, classes, to actually take control of the way things are happening, at least at a level of... The, the, the dialogue that we have as a people. So, you know, I, I'm very concerned that if, if the human race does wipe itself out uh, in this century, it will be a waste of four point something billion years of evolution on this planet. By the way, I know you're an American. Do you believe in evolution? I know not many Americans do. Oh, geez. Um, are you asking? Well, I'll give you a, let's see, who is Rob McNeely and his metaphysical beliefs? Um, I would say I actually pray every single day. I hate religion in, in most of its constructs around the world because I think most of the evil that comes out of the world usually is done in the name of such religion, though um, I believe intrinsically that there must be something, and that's about as far as I go with faith. Uh, I do pray. Some people call it meditate. Some people call it focused intention, directed thinking, things like that. And I do that on a regular basis. And when I started doing that, things got better for me. Maybe it was psychological. Maybe it was just wishful thinking. Maybe it's living in a fog. But I find comfort in that. Um, 
I actually do not like most religions, though I did grow up uh, Catholic. Uh, and I actually uh, went to school in Ireland, and I actually went to a school that was half a seminary over there, St. Patrick's College in Maynooth. Um, but I just don't really care much for religion in, in most uh, of the ways that it's manifested itself. So I would agree with you, not as far as an atheist, because I, I don't think I have enough knowledge to make that decisive determination. Um, but, uh, you know, do I believe in evolution? I think evolution completely coincides with the fact that there may or may not be a deity running things. So, uh, and if you look at things, even in my own life, I evolve as a person on a regular basis. Change is a constant, and I see change all around me. I see it internally. Um, I see my children, and I have three of them now, and I watch them evolve and grow and change. So I absolutely, I absolutely think that there is evolution in this, you know, in the world. Um, do I believe, as some people do, that the dinosaurs were planted by Satan six thousand years ago to confuse us? No, I don't really do that. <laughs> well, we agree on a couple of things. I was raised an Irish Catholic as well, uh, but in Australia, until about the age of eight, when I think I listened in church for the first time. And I remember hearing the, the priest say that we're all born evil. And I remember at the age of eight thinking, wow, that is the most insane concept. I think you could even, if you had to sit down and come up with a despicable evil idea, <laughs> that would probably be the best despicable idea you could come up with. And I walked out, never went back at the age of eight. But look, we agree that religion is the cause of uh, a great deal of evil uh, over the last thousands and thousands of years. Absolutely. So anyway, when you, getting back to my motivation, it's all about um, how do we create more intelligent dialogue between people around the world and, and start to develop a vision for the human race, for where we want to be by 2050. We just published a book I just uh, with TPN Text, our publishing arm now, we just published our first book recently called Designing 2050, and it's uh, written by Australia's leading futurist, Dr. Peter Elliott, who's been a guest on my show a number of times. And it's inspiring to me to sit down and talk with people that actually have a vision for the human race for the next 50 years, how we can come together as, as a species and, and try and create a pathway that will enable us to live together in harmony with a, and sustainably on this planet. Well, I, I absolutely think that at least how can we, if you're asking a question on how can we change some of those things, how I see it is I think social networking is actually in social media actually can be a really positive force for making change globally. Oh, absolutely. But here's the trick. It only will be a positive force if we make a the the, the deliberate intention for it to be a positive force. You know, I... I like to say that the internet is a tool like any other tool, like a hammer. And you can use it to erect a house or you can use it to hit somebody over the head with. It's what you do with it that matters. The very fact that we have social media, that we have podcasting, that we have blogging, doesn't in and of itself mean that it's going to be a positive force. You know, there are... Um, I have a fairly simplistic view of the world, perhaps. But it appears to me that the people who are wealthy and powerful on this planet are the minority... And they're going to try and ensure that their wealth and power is maintained. And sure. whenever anything comes along that threatens that, they're going to try and subvert it, control it. And that 
is happening in a lot of ways with blogging and podcasting and uh, the internet in general. Even though, you know, I'm still very optimistic about all of these things, it's very interesting to see how businesses can come along and start to uh, change the way that they're used. I was just reading the financial disclosure statement on your blog, the Startup Story Radio blog, before we went to air, Rob. Uh-oh. And, and it says... Uh-oh. Advertising space or posts may not always be identified as paid or sponsored content. That, Absolutely. That, I was shocked and horrified to read that, Rob McNeely. Uh-oh. Busted. But, you know, the the thing is that that's actually, you know, I, I kudos for reading that, and that's why it's posted. Um, so people do read that. And, you know, the one thing is, you know, I podcast for a business. I'm doing this to make money. And I, and I don't lie about that. I don't hide it. I'm not ashamed of it. I'm not a journalist. I don't claim to be a journalist. So why then, claim- if you don't hide it, why wouldn't you always identify paid or sponsored content as being paid or sponsored content? Well, honestly, most of the sponsored content is, well, I guess it depends on what you mean by sponsored content. Like there's people out there that, you know, blog for payments and don't tell people we don't do that with Start Story Radio. Um, guests are not paid. You're not paid. I don't charge for that. That's a free service. Most of the content on StartupStoryRadio.com is actually, you know, the sponsors are listed right on the front page. These are the sponsors, and those are the sponsors. And all the information on there is paid for by the people that sponsor the show, which are listed as sponsors. So, you know, and so if you read a content or any content on our site that's related to one of those sponsors, yeah, it's those sponsors are paying for that content to be there. Um, now, there's that crossover, whereas, okay, are we writing blog posts and not telling people that they're sponsored? No, that's not what we do, though I do know that is pretty rampant in blogging. So I guess it depends on where you go with it. We disclose up front right on every single page who our sponsors are and, you know, why they're, you know, not necessarily why they're there. But also the actual, the disclaimer that you read, there's actually a boilerplate disclaimer that you put out there for websites. Um, So that's actually pretty standard. It wasn't like we wrote that or had a lawyer write it up. It's something we felt that, one, we should have that just in case, you know, people question it. And I think Google actually also likes you to have those kind of disclaimers in their webmaster tools. If you read up on some of that stuff, they say if you actually have any sponsors on a website that you should disclose that with a financial disclosure. So that is why that's there. But here's my problem is that mainstream media, traditional 20th century media, I think most of us would agree today that it has been fairly corrupted by financial motives. Sure. It's certainly true in countries like yours and countries like mine. And this new media, this social media that we're all trying to build, I'm very concerned that it's heading down the same path that people are being manipulated by the opportunity to make money and that, in fact, there's a growing expectation in the blogosphere and in podcasting that you should be making money. And if you're not making money, if you're not covering your show or your site with sponsorships, that you're doing something wrong, that you're losing, that you're failing, rather than we're here to build a new trustworthy, transparent, uh, genuine kind of media. We're here to reinvent what people think about when they think about media. And, and I think that's it's human nature 
for us to want to make money. And there's nothing wrong with making money. I got no problems with making a quid. I just, it just, I think we need to be really careful as we build this thing out that we are providing leadership for the community to think about this in terms of creating a new media that is not as corrupted by monetary interests as 20th century media was, ended up? Well, I think that, one, I think it inevitably will be corrupted, as you fear. And I think there's really, I don't see any way that that's going to be, I don't see any way that that can be stopped. That's very Catholic of you, Rob. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry to sound like a priest all of a sudden. (laughs) Where's my ruler? Um, but, uh, But I really do think that I think I'm a little more pessimistic. I actually am probably far more pessimistic about the way, the state of the world and where I think things are heading now. And the, a lot of that goes into, you know, my former careers, you know, selling spy planes to the government. <laughs> and, uh, and, and yeah, no, but most people don't actually. Um, uh, no, I worked for a, a Swiss aircraft company at one point in my life, and I was working on the government and fleet sales uh, side of things. And that was my last corporate job before I became a full on full-time entrepreneur four years ago. Um, but as, as far as you know, social media, I guess it's kind of a tough choice because to, to create good social media, I guess that's a loose definition of how you define good. You have, somebody has got to pay the bills cause you got to spend the time to do it and develop it. Do you know what I mean? To really get out there and provide a good quality product for me to, you know, how many hours I, I, I have no idea how much time you spend on your podcast, but I bet you it's a lot. Um, I mean, you get into a system and learn how to do it, but it takes time to produce and it takes time to get the good guests. And it takes time when you're, especially at least when you're first starting out to script, it takes time to edit and promote it. And, and, you know, you got to look at it. Okay. Are you going to make any money from this? Not because you want to be a billionaire necessarily, but the fact is you're taking that time away from something that could be providing meals for your family and paying your mortgage and paying for the car and, you know, all those other things. So, you know, I, I think that as I look at entrepreneurs, you know, and I, I do a little bit of public speaking when I always tell people, if you want to save the world or change the world, make a pile of cash first and then go change the world with that pile of cash. Because I think you're more likely to be successful in that process is if you have the financial resources first and then do something good with it. Yeah, no, like I, I think that, I, I, I got to argue that point with you, mate. I hear that a lot. It's what we call the Bill Gates model. And whilst Bill's obviously <laughs> doing, uh, you know, a terrific job, he's about to do an even better job in about a week. Um, and he's full-time, yeah. Yeah, but I, I, I totally reject that model. I think we need to be thinking about changing the world uh, on a daily basis, where we are as who we are with the resources that we have. And our, our overriding motivation on a daily basis needs to be thinking about, are we making the world a better place with what we're doing? And I, I suspect that this whole idea that, well, get rich first, then you can change the world, has somehow been driven or propagated by the powerful and the wealthy because they know the chances of you becoming wealthy are very slim because they control the model. Right? And if you think you're going to wait to become wealthy before you change the world, 99% of the time it ain't going to happen. Well, the reason I would say this, like as far as I, I do a lot of consulting with entrepreneurs and startups and I'm not saying you can't do good along the way. For instance, part of the, that, the thing that I think is doing good is I'm a big proponent of entrepreneurship uh, for a variety of reasons. One, I think that gener- in general, power should be decentralized, not monopolized. 
I think that people are more fulfilled when they are entrepreneurs rather than working for someone else in a large corporation. And I like the idea of decentralizing everything as you look at, you know, as you consolidate power into smaller and smaller and fewer hands, what ends up happening is if people make mistakes, they have much larger ramifications in a monopolized industry or organization or government, whereas I believe that even governments should be decentralized because they have much better chance of the mistakes not rippling through and destroying everything. And I think one of the things that I like to do along the way is I'm promoting entrepreneurship because I think entrepreneurs in general tend to be, you know, uh, better producers. They tend to be the ones that are coming up and creating more things. They tend to be the ones that are more collaborative, whereas I found in the corporate environment, people tend to be more competitive. Um, and so, you know, I am doing that along the way. I haven't made my piles of cash, but if you want to be at least be an entrepreneur that's successful, you definitely need to be focused on making revenue because if you focus on changing the world before you are even uh, sustaining your own business, you will probably fail your business and then you don't do anybody any good at all. Well, I think you can do both at the same time. Uh, and I've met lots of entrepreneurs who are doing that and have been successful. I, I don't think it's an either-or proposition. And I think if, you're, if the DNA of your business is integrated with these ideas of changing the world on a daily basis and being profitable, then you set, you, you set your intention around that. You start thinking about ways that you can do that and you get creative. You know, being an entrepreneur is all sure. about being creative, figuring out new ways to create value, right? Well, so, absolutely. I, I just think it's a really important meme that I, I would love to see more discussion and, and uh, particularly on shows like yours where you're talking to entrepreneurs all the time is this this idea that uh, we can make a difference. We can make the world a better place on a daily basis if we make a decision to do that. And, you know, I, I spent a lot of time, I'm 37, I became an entrepreneur properly, I guess. Um, I've had a few false starts before this, but uh, at 34 when I, I left my corporate job at Microsoft and and I you know threw myself out there and started TPN. And I'd spent a long time before that, probably my adult life into that time, think, saying, you know, big, you know, seeing really bad things being done by big business, seeing bad things done by big government, but not really feeling like I was empowered to make a difference, that there was anything that I could do. And it's only been the last four or so years since I uh, left the corporate job that I've started to realise the power that I have, that all of us have, once we make the decision to get out there and, and make a difference. And I, I think that what's certainly missing in Australia, and I think you know, the US is a little bit more uh, positive about entrepreneurship. But in, in Australia, being an entrepreneur has a lot of negative connotations. We had... Why is that? Why is that? Well, I, I think it's partly because of um, our sort of pseudo-British convict heritage where anyone who wants to be successful or wants to be wealthy is seen to be... It's a class thing. You're trying to make yourself into a a lord or a noble and we we intrinsically somewhere in our dna we dislike that and i think also in the 80s we had a number of uh very very high profile entrepreneurs in this country that crashed and burned taking billions of dollars in shareholder wealth and savings down with them and therefore again you know when you say you're an entrepreneur people think you want to be this high-flying billionaire jet setter uh, CAD, you know. Uh, so I think there is a negative connotation here. But 
you know, one of the memes that I hope to instill, and I'm doing this with my kids. You know, my kids are seven. And for the last year, we've been working on business plans with them, looking for a good business for them to start at the, uh, they're twin, twin boys, um, businesses that they can start. And in fact, we were having that discussion last night. One of them, one of my boys uh, set a goal when he was five to buy his own laptop because he wasn't happy with the old computer that I'd given him. And he started saving his $5 a week pocket money to buy a laptop. And about six months ago, he finally got there. It took him two years, basically. And he bought uh, himself his laptop. And then his brother suddenly got serious about it and bought his a couple of months later. The first one uh, is now, we went to an Apple store on the weekend. He set himself a goal to get an iMac. He wants a $1,500 iMac. Starting and he's seven. And he's seven. <laughs> he's starting from scratch. And we sat down last night and he gets $7 a week pocket money at the moment if he does all of his chores. And we worked out how long it would take for him to get his iMac. The deal that I've got with my kids, by the way, with this sort of stuff, when they're saving for good, worthy uh, objects, I say, I'll, I'll put in half. You get to half and I'll, I'll kick in the other half. So he needs to save 750 bucks to get an iMac. But even at $7 a week, that's going to take him a, a while. And I said, well, look, you know, one of the things we should rethink is what's a business that you can start and we can run together, I can help you run, that will help you make that money in a shorter period of time. And he's very excited about that. We've looked at a, a number of things over the last couple of years and every time he comes up with an idea, I sit down and help them write a one-page business plan and look at the risks and look at the, the upside and we try and do some research and we work it out. But this whole idea of, of getting kids when they're young and helping them think about entrepreneurship in terms of how do you create value and, and empowering them with the idea and with the knowledge that they can do it, that you don't have to be particularly smart or educated or have a great contact base or whatever it is to be an entrepreneur. It's about being creative, really. Well, it's kind of interesting because I have three children under six. Um, and one of the things is we're homeschooling our children. And, awesome. But on top of that, and uh, and out here we're kind of freaks because in the in the states homeschoolers tend to be more fundamental Christian based and more secular homeschoolers, yep. which means we're total freaks. <laughs> we're a, minor, a minority and, a, and within a minority. And uh, I, and my wife is a, a medical doctor uh, turned stay at home mom, medical blogger, and I am a former corporate MBA, which is that and a cup of coffee will buy you a <laughs> cup of coffee, and. Uh, and uh, so what I tell people, it's interesting, we have a different approach to educating our children. And we want our kids to be complete entrepreneurs where they, by the time they finish high school, that they can go into the world and have all the skills to manage their lives, manage their financial you know, issues, you know, balancing their checkbook and all that. But on top of that, they, they have the ability and have been exposed to entrepreneurship. Um, if you go to Riley's reviews.com, R I L E Y reviews.com is, uh, my five-year-old's blog. <laughs> awesome. And, and, uh, what we, she's actually starting to, we started this in the winter and we're going to pick it back up. But the whole concept was she saw mommy and daddy blogging and podcasting. She's like, I want my own blog. I'm like, you're five. She's like, I want a blog. So we went through the whole process of what it meant, what a blog was how to register a blog, how do you create a blog, and how you can come up with an idea for a business. And the whole concept behind this was to uh, review toys and books for children's, uh, uh, actually reviewing children's toys and books. And and so we're going to pick that back up again in the fall. It's going to be part of these kind of projects are going to be the process by which we teach our children so that by the time they get out of high school, 
that we're going to save enough money that if they want to go on to college, um, they'll be more than welcome to, and we'll pay for that. By the time, if they want to become an entrepreneur when they're 18, though I have a feeling this will start earlier than that, we'll fund that business and really work through like a real business and we'll provide the startup money to make that happen. Or if they decide that they just don't want to do anything, we'll just, you know, put the money in the bank and a trust and, you know, put a lot of strings on it when they decide to be of age where they can have that money. And my, it's kind of odd saying that I don't really necessarily care if my kids go to college now because I have found that, you know, college teaches you how to be a cog or get an entry-level job in a large corporation just to be part of the wheel, be a part of the machine. And that doesn't teach people how to create. And I have found, you know, gone through, you know, many, many years of college and formal business training that it, 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 it's really a lot of it's been a waste. And I hate to say that because I spent a lot of time and a lot of money doing it. But looking where I am now and what I feel are the things that will make me happy and make my future viable, make my family's life and future viable, college doesn't add a lot to that. And since I've been doing my show, Startup Story Radio, um, you know, we've probably done, I don't know, maybe close to 100 interviews now. And I meet and I network and meet entrepreneurs all the time. And you would not believe how many entrepreneurs, and I ask this question too on a regular basis, how did college help you with your business? And, then, and pretty much across the board, they say it didn't. It helped me network or, you know, it taught me social skills. It taught me how to drink, you know. And so that's kind of where we're going. So I think you and I probably have maybe some similar ideals about entrepreneurship and what it means. And I think the thing with kids is interesting. I met uh, an Australian, very successful Australian businessman, owns a big uh, clothing chain about a year ago at a um, lunch for entrepreneurs. And he was explaining how he got started an entrepreneur when he was 18, when he was 17, 18 and finished high school. Um, his father and his grandfather sat down with him and said, okay, well, if you want to go and start, you, you've got an option. You can go to college or you can um, buy your own business. And the tradition in their family was when you finished school, your father and your grandfather would help you buy your business. They would loan you the money to start or buy a business. But you wow. ne you needed to build it and run it because their philosophy was you don't get to take over the family business. You shouldn't take over a successful business unless you've built a business from scratch because you're not going to know what you need to know unless you've gone out there and built something. And he talked about how he went out and he bought a, I think it was a shoe factory and, uh, and thought he knew everything and it lost money for five years and his father and grandfather needed to bail him out time and time again. But eventually he learnt and he had to pay them back the money. It was treated as a loan. But, you know, the family was acting as the VC <laughs> rather than having to go out and, and get external VC. So obviously they have a lot more interest in your uh, long-term success than any VC really does or bank does. And I think that's a great model as well. I, my kids often say, well, I said, what do you want to do when you grow up? And they say, well, we want to come and work with you. We want to come and help you run TPN. And I say, well, you know, that'd be fun. But I think before you come and run TPN, you're going to need to go and do your own thing for a while. You're going to need to build your own business. And I'll help you do that. Now, that that's to me, that'd be a great goal by the time they finish school to be able to help them go and buy or, or start a business. So why do you focus on promoting and encouraging kids to be entrepreneurs rather than uh, going down to college? You say already say it's kind of stigmatized a little more so in Australia than it is, say, in the United States. So why would you want to put them through that? Oh, who gives a shit about stigma, man? I mean, 
all of the good all of the good things have stigma attached to them. Um, you know, it, it, I think being entrepreneur, being an entrepreneur is is should be something that is admired and respected. And as you said earlier on, I totally agree with you. I think uh, from my experience anyway, people have a much uh, well, let, let, me, let me go back. Men, all right, men in the West, we're seriously screwed up, and I think we know it. And and if you look at the rates of depression and suicide and alcoholism and drug addiction across the West, it shows that uh, men in particular have got serious serious issues. You think you think about how well off we are in, in your country and my country. Even people in the lowest socioeconomic demographic today in the twenty first century. If you compared them to the nobility of Europe three, four hundred years ago, they are so well off it's obscene in terms of the amount of food that we've got, the quality of food that we've got, the access to shelter, to heating, to clothing, to education, to information, to transport. We are the luckiest generation that has ever lived in the history of the human race. And again, I apologize to your fundamentalist listeners, but that's around about 2 million years, folks. Um, <laughs> we are the luckiest generation that's ever lived. And yet, in your country, in my country, we have record rates of depression, suicide, drug addiction, alcoholism, etc. Why? It doesn't make sense. And I think, I suspect, I don't have any hard data to back this up, but my gut feeling on this is that for millions of years, men had something to do that was important. We had to go and hunt. We had to farm. We had to build shelter. We had to protect our families from wild beasts and from, you know, uh, marauders and from gangs and stuff. Here we are in the 21st century and we're all white-collar workers. We're fat. We're lazy. We, we, you know, watch football or we go fishing or we do this stuff that we try and give or we, or we have the corner office with the rubber tree planned and the business card with the raised lettering. We do all this crazy stuff to try and feel like our lives have some sort of meaning or importance or relevance. And, but deep down somewhere in our prefrontal cortex or probably in our limbic system, we know that this is all bullshit. We know that it's all bullshit. And it's having a dramatic, dramatic effect on our self-esteem. A dramatic effect which shows itself in, in cancer and, and all those other things that I mentioned before. We need, to, we need a certain amount of cut and thrust in our lives and it needs to have a certain amount of meaning. And I'm not just talking about men. I mean, women, completely different situation, I think, because women need to step up and realise that the, 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 the matriarchal, sorry, the patriarchal society that they've lived under for the last couple of thousand years, it can easily be overturned. The women at the end of the day rule the world, whether they know it or not. Oh, I, I absolutely agree. I've been trained for eight years now as of uh, a week and a half ago. So I absolutely agree. I am not the one in charge of my household. <laughs> well, I've been just, just the world. I mean, uh, this is, gets me into a whole other conversation, but I, I, <laughs> Because I'm a bloke. And I, I, remember, I used to be at Microsoft and making a couple of hundred grand a year and traveling the world. And I felt so empty. And I used to sit down with my clients, CIOs and CEOs and other Maybe it was just Microsoft. Well, it could have been. But sitting there with big guys <laughs> working, big companies, and we'd get a couple of bottles of wine into us. And, and I'd say, don't you feel like this is just all bullshit? Like we're moving this piece of paper from that tray to that tray. Really? With our intelligence and our education, this is all we're good for? This is really what it's all about? 
oh well we made another million dollars on the profit line woohoo like that's that's really what our contribution to life on this planet is going to be that we're going to die at 56 or 65 and our contribution is going to be that i've got a you know 40 square house and a holiday house and a mercedes that's that's what i'm here for it doesn't seem that doesn't seem to make any sense to me and i I think Uh, i'll I'll take the Mercedes and the 40 square house and the, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I think that, you know, the, the thing about being an entrepreneur is, you know, on a daily basis, I don't, I'm talking about in the startup phase, you know, on a daily basis that whether or not you have enough money to, to buy food next week depends on how well you execute today, how smart you are, how hard you work, how smart you work. And, and I don't know. I think there is a there is a, a level of self esteem that comes with that uh, if you if you do well at it, obviously if you execute well. But, well, but, I, I, but more than that, I, I agree. Think, I think being an entrepreneur, it, we're teaching our kids and teaching the people in our society that being an entrepreneur isn't about making money; it's about creating value. Now, one of the outputs of that value may be money. Hopefully, it will be money, so you can continue. But it's the the, the root of the word entrepreneur is French, and it actually means to make and it doesn't mean make money it means to make and that's what we make entrepreneurs make value we create value hopefully positive value in the world around us i completely agree and and as all my you know most of my listeners know i actually run a construction company that's my my real brick and mortar low-tech form of income and that is where i make the bulk of my income right now um, my wife and I are really enjoying social media and we're looking to do social media full time and it takes time. And so we do, you know, we are trying to make our living this way because I think I can make more value in the world doing social media and marketing and having more of an effect on people and being able to create change. So I absolutely agree with you. But I do think um, beyond just making value, entrepreneurs, they they feel it, they taste it. When you work in a big corporation, you you really don't you're i think you're kind of insulated from whatever it is your decisions are what effect they really have as an entrepreneur if i know that i cut marketing and stop advertising this week my phone stops ringing next week and in 6 weeks i'm going to be tight on money because i know you know the process is these are all the steps it takes to generate revenue to create business and if I, you know, every little tweak that I make and every decision I make on a daily basis with my construction business and social media to a much lesser extent um, really makes a difference in the bottom line and whether or not I can remain viable. And I think to be able to say, OK, I twist this knob and this lever moves and being able to see that and connecting those dots is why being an entrepreneur, one, I think makes us a much more or a much better business person. But I also think that it really makes us feel more fulfilled because like you were saying in that little limbic or limbic, limbic, you know, part of our brain, that didn't sound good. (laughs) Oh, there's a Freudian slip in there somewhere. And uh, and, and what ends up happening is we are we actually can see the effect that we can have you know, from our creations and our work and our progress and and things like that. So I I definitely can relate to that. You can say I did this. You know, I can look at the G'day World or the T or the Podcast Network and whatever else, and I can say, you know, the Podcast Network today has about half a million listeners a month. We've got about wow. um, 100 shows in production, and 
and I can look at that and despite everything, I think, oh, well, I did that. I started that from scratch and, and, and I built this into something where there was nothing before. And there's, you know, 500,000 uh, people every month that come in and, and are somehow changed by this thing that I started. Now, there's a lot of people producing shows for TPN. It's not just me by any stretch of the imagination. But, you know, I can say, well, you know, that wouldn't be there if I hadn't gone out and got off my ass and, and done something. So yeah, you're right. There's a, there's a, um, a self esteem that comes with that. But I, but you know, getting back to the kids, why I think it's really important for our kids all to understand entrepreneurship is this empowering idea that they can have, that they can make a difference, that they can start something. And I think the younger that you start to teach that to them, as you said, by the time they finish high school, the the better off they'll be if they can, you know, my my hope for my kids is that over the next 10 years between now and when they finish high school they'll have started half a dozen businesses um, you know one of the, one of the things that i find about being an entrepreneur and even in myself so it's not just uh other people that i've seen this in being an entrepreneur has made me a much more confident person across the board because i know that i can make a living on my own from my own brain from my own ideas and concepts whereas i still you know interact with a lot of corporate people who even have mbas and titles and you know i'm the midwest development manager supply chain paradigm shifting market efficiency guy <laughs> um, and, and you run into these guys and a lot of them are really insecure of course they are but and, and and i meet entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs seem just are a lot more laid back they're like you know, confident. They, they understand what it takes. And it's just interesting. I think, you know, promulgating those values into a child when they're young makes them more confident growing up. And I think that's really healthy for kids. You know, I've, I've interviewed a lot of entrepreneurs in Australia. In fact, there's a, there's a great story. Um, there's a, an entrepreneur in, in Australia, uh, called Tony Smith, who, uh, ran a really large, uh, real estate, sort of travel hotel chain thing in Australia. And um, I had him on my show about six months ago. And he was telling me he started his first business when he was about 14. And it was a lawn mowing business. He started mowing people's lawns in his neighborhood. And when he got too much work and he couldn't do them all, he got a couple of friends from school and said, hey, do you want to make some money on the weekends? or after school, and, and they would go mow the lawns and, you know, he'd make a bit of money, he'd take a cut of everything that they did. He went on to, um, st- he started a business when he was, another business when he was about 18. He noticed that there was a bunch of kids going uh, from Melbourne up to Queensland, so it's like going from New York down to Florida or to California for school holidays and to get drunk. It's basically what we call schoolies week. And he created a business around that, basically making it easy for them to find accommodation and to get there and that kind of stuff, which he turned into a um, publicly listed company that was worth hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars until about a month ago or six weeks ago when um, the current management of that company, he had left, still had lots of shares tied up in it though. The current management basically ran it into the ground and it crashed and Tony lost a lot of money, had to sell his $24 million mansion that he just finished building here. Had He basically lost a lot. Uh, I, I won't say everything, but he had to sell all of his houses and lost all of his money. And, and they, he was interviewed in the paper. And they said, how do you feel? And he said, well, 
I'm all right. You know, it hasn't been the best week in history, but um, still got my wife, got my kids, got my health. I'm going to take a holiday for a couple of months and uh, regroup and I'll be back. You know, at the end of the day, this is all just stuff and I'll come back and we'll do something else. And I shot him an email after that and said, you know, it's, it's fabulous to me. And I think that's, you know, a sign of this self-esteem that we talked about. He realizes that all that stuff is just stuff. I mean, if I lost my house and, and, and my, my BMW and, and all of the trappings today, it wouldn't bother me for a second. I mean, none of that stuff has any meaning for me today. They're nice to haves, and, you know, they, it drives nice, my house is nice, but at the end of the day, if I was living in a one-bedroom apartment and riding a bicycle, I would be absolutely as happy. None, none of that, All that stuff is important, and I think... Again, this is part of this consumerist society that we've grown up in in the US and Australia that teaches us all that kind of stuff is important. You need to have the big screen TV. If you don't have the 65-inch plasma, you're not really fulfilled as a man. And um, it's all bullshit, you know? And I think being an entrepreneur in part teaches you that because you start to learn what it's, what it's all really about. Absolutely. You mentioned earlier that you started a religion based on atheism. That <laughs> kind of sounds like an oxymoron. And what is a, a religion based on atheism? And um, why would you start one? Oh, I'm glad you asked. Look, it's, um, I've been a hardcore atheist since I was a kid. And um, it, I've been really excited in the last few years about the stuff that guys like Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens have been doing, spreading, uh, taking the, the atheist uh, argument very very public and it, it started to I started to realize that being an atheist is a fairly solitary uh, profession it's not like we get together with other atheists and talk about uh, our atheism and how we then get meaning in our life you know I think uh, some people particularly people that are that are involved in religions think that atheism is almost like nihilism when it really isn't and you know I think most atheists that I know get a huge amount of uh, meaning and awe uh, and this wonderful sense of wonder and mystery when they look at how the universe is created and how the universe works from a scientific perspective. But there's no place where we get together and talk about that kind of stuff or where we take the data that's coming from science and figure out how we apply that to our lives to give it a sense of meaning or a sense of purpose. And I, I thought, well, maybe... If Dawkins and Hitchens are successful in getting people to think about religion and, and to convert some of the people that are, consider themselves religious today to, to move over to becoming atheists, that we need a, a structure for them to become part of to help them uh, discuss these sorts of issues and topics with other people, like-minded people. So I created this, uh, the, the Church of Lotu, L-O-T-U. It stands for the Church of the Laws of the Universe, where we worship the laws of the universe as they are expressed to us by the scientific community. And we tr try to interpret those laws and, and figure out how we derive meaning and purpose from them in our daily lives. So is this something you're monetizing? No, no, I'm deliberately not monetizing it. Um, that and the charity that I run, Geeks Who Care, um, uh, uh, some, just some of the initiatives that I put my time and energy into, not enough of my time and energy, by the way, at the moment, they're still in a very fledgling state, but um, you know, I have 20, 30-year uh, visions for these things that uh, I'm going to devote my time to trying to create structures and communities for people to get together and hopefully find some meaning and make the world a better place as a result. So we, we've 
you know, kind of bounced back around how you'd want to change the world because you want to use social media to try to change the world. But how specifically would you like to see the world changed? Uh oh. No, it's a good question. Um, you know, I I would like to see uh, the political systems in countries like yours and mine completely overhauled. I think that. Um, the American form of democracy that we've had a couple of hundred years of now in full swing, we, we've started to see the, the flaws of that. Um, you know, partic- well, that's because we're supposed to be a Republican form of government, not a democracy, and there is a difference between a republic and a democracy. Absolutely. But you know, I think in the last 10 to 20 years in particular, we've started to see the excesses of your democracy and how it's causing massive damage on a global scale. And uh, so I I think we need to start to rethink the sort of governments that we want. But I realised many years ago, I read a biography on Rupert Murdoch uh, probably 10 or 15 years ago, and I realised back then that to really have any impact on the political sphere, you need to have a media company. You need to be able to reach a lot of people and... You need to be able to engage them in dialogue and um, give them something to think about if you want to change politics. So, I mean, I've got a bunch of ideas for how I'd like to see the political arena change, but essentially I'm deferring my hard thinking around that for another decade. I've got a 30-year plan and it's split into decades. And the first decade is building a global media company. And I'm a couple of years into that, or three, four years into that. Um, so once we have the media coming, then we can start to engage people in discussions around how we want to have our societies run and by whom. And, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of room for improvement. But the first part, but unless you have a media company, you can't really do that. Uh, you know, you see it in the, the current presidential election in your country. You see guys uh, in the last election like Dennis, Dennis Kuchnich and this time <laughs> Ron, Ron Paul who, even though they uh, have a, a huge support base in their own right and have very interesting ideas, just got shut out by the mainstream media. You know, because that, they are not on the payroll of the people who pay for the elections. Exactly. And, and the stuff that they're saying is contrary to the interests of the people who are paying for the elections. So, you know, when there's a major debate on Fox with all of the uh, nominees, uh, Ron Paul just doesn't get an invite even though at the time I think he was running second or third in terms of uh, the the primaries. You don't want to get me started on that because I'm I'm referred to out here as a Ron Paul nut. (laughs) Do you know Chris Perillo? No. Uh, Chris Perillo runs the Gnome Dex conference and uh, very popular geek over there, big, big blogger, one of the very early bloggers back with Scoble years and years ago. And a, one okay. of the very early podcasters as well, probably, you know, a very, very early podcaster. And Chris was on my show on G'day World um, so six, eight months ago. We were talking about Ron Paul then. And, uh, yeah, we were just talking about the fact that, yeah, Chris was a big Ron Paul nut. And we were talking about the fact that he was just getting shut out, that the media in your country was just shutting him out of the discussion. He was persona non grata. So, you know... It, you and I understand that the media has a lot of influence in the way that things Absolutely. happen. And so if we want to uh, change things, we need to run a media company. 
I would, I personally, you know, one of the things I'd like to accomplish in, in my lifetime is to see religion become like uh, slavery. I would like to isn't see... It, isn't it already there? Well, 90% of people in the world classify themselves as religious, man. So uh, it's uh, still got a huge amount of popular support. I think in terms of uh, the damage that it's done to the human race and continues to do, it's right up there with slavery. But, uh, I, you know, I think... But I- but I would feel a lot of those people are enslaved, depending on oh. what degree they <laughs> define themselves as religious. Well, I mean um, more that it becomes um, uh, socially unacceptable to believe in uh, invisible sky bullies or uh, to believe that your belief system is superior to everyone else. And your people, the people who believe what you believe, makes you superior to everyone else and everyone else deserves eternity of torture. Um, I, I think we need to get to a point as a species where those sorts of ideas become so socially unacceptable that if you are, if you do believe that, you hide it away and you don't uh, even talk about it because it's it's just, it's, it's 21st century. God, let's get over it. Let's move on, folks. Well, you know, I just find it ironic with so many people, you know, will view other people's religions that are, you know, playing with voodoo dolls and other things. And so many of the Western religions would look down at that, but yet they have their own interesting beliefs about, and I'm not going to single out any religion because there's lots of people listening to my show that are religious. And, and to me, I don't care what you believe. You know, I, I have, I don't care that you're an atheist. I hope that no one cares that I'm not a deist. Um, I'm an, you know, I'm not an atheist, but I'm not a deist. I believe that there is something out there. I guess I'd be pretty close to it. Agnostic, a spiritualist agnostic. Um, but I don't talk about that with most people because it's just not relevant for my, my, my interactions with most people. Um, I lived in Salt Lake City, Utah for a year prior to moving to Denver seven years ago. And that was actually the, the most difficult year of my life because I, I'm not you know, uh, LDS or Latter-day Saints or Mormon, depending on what you want to call it. I lived in Europe and as an American living in Europe, moving to Salt Lake City, another state here or, you know, in another state in my own country was a much bigger culture shock than moving to Australia or not Australia, but Ireland. But when you say you don't talk about it, I find that uh, appalling. This is one of the most important subjects that we should talk about and debate amongst ourselves. I mean, essentially, I see all religious arguments as being delusional and dangerous. Whenever we start saying, well, something invisible exists and uh, we don't have any evidence for it, but it controls us and we have to pray to it. And if you don't pray to it, you deserve eternity of torture in hell. That is an incredibly dangerous perspective. And, and you know, by definition... Believing, in, believing that something exists when there's no evidence to support that is delusional. So if people are walking around in our countries running the government and running big corporations who are delusional, that's incredibly dangerous for us as a society, incredibly dangerous. We need to talk about this stuff. You know, I grew up being told that you don't talk about religion, politics or sex at the dinner table. And even back then, I used to think, but they're the three most interesting subjects to talk about. If you, if you don't talk about that, what the hell are you going to talk about? The football and the weather? Again, I think this is one of the uh, memes that has been spread in our society to control us. You don't talk about these things. Why? Because, well, if we did talk about it, we'd all realise that it's a joke. 
and <laughs> we might actually change things. So I, I encourage everyone to talk about it. And no, don't in, be personally insulting. Let's d- discuss the ideas. Let's, d- let's debate the concepts. Let's debate the, the, the belief systems, not the individual. We don't attack individuals, but we attack and, and debate concepts and ideas and the basis for those. And let's, let's have rational discussions between human beings. But do you think, you know, I think the problem with that is just like with political parties out here, um, I, I don't subscribe to any one political party. And I, you know, it's been really heated. You know, this whole election cycle has been very, very heated. And you, would, you wouldn't be amazed. See, I don't believe in the lesser of two evils concept. In politics, in religion, in business, it's not the lesser of two evils. And I think we've been brainwashed to believe that there is a lesser of two evils. And I always say, if you support evil, you support evil. <laughs> you, you can't support evil and not expect to get evil. And I don't care if you think one is lesser. And really, I would argue that the degrees that they say are lesser are really false degrees. But you hear from everybody who supports one guy is like, well, this is better than the other guy. Like, neither guy is worth your vote. Neither guy is worth the time because they are evil. Either you support the Constitution or you don't. Either you support a war or you don't. Either you support freedom or you don't. Either you know you you know you support privacy or you don't. Um, you support entrepreneurship or you don't. It, it's not like you know you can have it both ways. And it's amazing to me that so many people. I think political parties are like a secular religion now. You know, it's my guy is great, and I don't care what you say because I believe he's great, even though all the the facts are to the contrary. His voting records to the contrary, uh, but I support it just like a lot of people may. I say it works on religion. I also say it's a lot like multi-level marketing. Just have faith and hold on six more months, and and you'll be successful at it, even though there's no chance you ever will be. Yeah, look, I, I tend to agree with you on that, and I think again, debate and discussion around all of these things is healthy for us as a society, healthy for us as a democracy or a republic. You know, we need to talk about these things, and we need to talk about them. Often, and we need to, you know, I, I, I would protect everyone's right to believe whatever they want to believe, to a point. You know, everyone says, well, I get in debates on Twitter, particularly with Americans all the time, and they Uh-oh. say, well, you know, uh, you, I should be allowed to believe whatever I want to believe. All beliefs, I say, so you're saying that all beliefs are fine? Yes. I say, okay, what about child molestation? If you believe in child molestation, am I allowed to debate that with you? And they say, well, are you comparing Christianity to child molestation? I say, no, of course not. Christianity's done far more damage to the human race than child molesters could even hope to because it's been institutionalized. But again, you know, Nazis, we don't accept Nazism as a philosophy. We don't accept slavery as a philosophy. We don't accept segregation as a belief system. We don't accept... Um, lots of things as belief systems and so this whole idea that you shouldn't have the right to debate what people believe i think is just nonsense absolutely i am very interesting a slightly off topic for my show but it's been uh very interesting nonetheless (laughs) um uh cameron riley uh where can people find out more my blog is g'day world g-d-a-y g'day world.com and uh, I encourage everyone to go to thepodcastnetwork.com and check out all of the great podcasts that we have on TPN. 
Cameron, thank you so much for coming on. This is Rob McNeely and Startup Story Radio. It has been a fantastic show. Definitely check us out on the web, startupstoryradio.com. And if you like what you hear here, please write us a review in iTunes. Thank you very much. And we'll catch you next time.